Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the idea of quarantining in hotels. And you ask us, should I care about the Welsh elections? So we're waiting for the government to announce what plans it has to quarantine people in hotels who are coming back from certain countries. So the idea so far, although it hasn't yet been officially decided yet, is for arrivals from South Africa and South America, as well as Portugal, coming back to Britain to have to isolate in a hotel for 10 days. Well, actually, flights from those places are actually banned. So they'd be coming back sort of indirectly from those countries. But at the moment, the rules are, if you're coming into the UK, then you do have to self-isolate for 10 days. But I suppose this centralised system would make sure that people are actually sticking to that rule. But You know, this hasn't been part of the UK's pandemic response so far, and it has come under pressure from certain voices in in the scientific community, as well as politicians, to do this sort of all the way along. But it's resisted it for various reasons. Will it be too late if they they decide to bring bring this in now? Alva, you were writing about it in Morning Call. What do you think? Yeah, and I'm I'm interested to hear both of your thoughts on this, because... I have my own views, but I think there were still kind of gaps where I just thought, well, I don't really know the answer on that one. It's funny because funny is maybe not the right word, but we're coming up on on nearly a year since the whole thing began, depending on when you measure it from. We're away off the anniversary of the March lockdown in the UK, but we have passed the one year anniversary of Wuhan locking down. And so it is in some ways grimly funny that a year on, we are now having a serious conversation about quarantining people in hotels, arriving in from countries, whether directly or indirectly, where there is a known deadly virus, because clearly this would have been a really helpful intervention a year ago. But I actually don't think that it is too late to be thinking about at this stage. We do know that there are some cases of certainly the South African variant, I don't know about the other ones, already in the UK, but it clearly makes sense to limit those as as much as possible and to kind of 
redouble our efforts to reinforce the quarantine, which is already mandatory for people arriving from those countries. And actually, like travel from those countries is already banned. So we're really only talking about British citizens returning home from those countries indirectly because the flights are cancelled, as you said. But it clearly makes sense to do that given the huge risk of a new variant sort of getting out of control in the UK that resists the vaccine or is just not as effectively treated by it. That means that we have to revaccinate everyone all over again and we get, you know, we're back where we started. So clearly there's a kind of open and shut case for doing this, which is why the government is definitely going to announce it later. But I think that the bigger question is, you know, this is only for a a limited number of countries where there is a known new variant that poses a potential risk, but variants are in general a risk. And also we live in a in a global economy, in a in a really connected world. So the the idea that you can contain these existing variants just with these quite targeted measures, I think is is not certain at all. I'm quite influenced on this by the epidemiologist and public health expert, Debbie Shridhar, who we've interviewed for the magazine a few times. And she has always talked about how border controls have been the blind spot in the UK's pandemic response, that it's sort of politically different, difficult, I think, for everyone to make the case for them, whether you're on the right or the left, for different reasons. And I think given the kind of economy that we are, it's particularly difficult. It would be, would be logistically very tricky. But clearly the way that you keep this under control is by having mandatory quarantine for everyone arriving in the UK, regardless of where. That's sort of my view. And I think that that's clearly a difficult trade-off because of the impact on tourism and aviation and the wider economy. And also, the, you know, I... I'm no logistics expert. That could be a huge logistical challenge to the extent where it isn't viable. But I think in principle, that just clearly makes sense as a policy. But also because of those areas where I've said I kind of don't know enough, I'm interested in what the what the two of you think on that one. So Stephen, do you think sort of mandatory hotel quarantine for, for all arrivals would be a good idea or, you know, a feasible one? Well, I think it's a good idea, right? Because, I mean, you know, it kind of comes back down to the kind of, yeah, if you're somebody who thinks lockdowns don't work, which obviously no one on, on this podcast is, what part of the germ theory of disease do you think doesn't apply? And I'm deeply sceptical that targeted quarantines can really work for, yeah, in terms of border closures, because not only is Heathrow a hub airport, so you have people coming in and out of it who are never technically in the United Kingdom, Schiphol is a hub airport, but wider, yeah, going wider than just like our immediate European airports. Bluntly, if there's a South African variant, there is almost certainly a South African variant transmitting freely at Jomo Kenyatta Airport. If there is a, this is where the, I don't know why I've decided to commit myself to having to know anything about Latin American hub <laughs> but imagine I very confidently and correctly said one. And also because like the number of countries that have expertise and the ability to go, yes, we've identified a new variant quite quickly, is fairly small. I think the kind of whack-a-mole, oh, you just do this whenever there's a new variant approach, obviously won't won't work. Because mostly, unless you've got very lucky about where a variant starts, you mostly aren't going to identify it till, till later. Now, there's a really important sort of technological light at the end of the tunnel here, which is the 
UK's new vaccine distribution and creation centre. This is something that kind of came into being, well, sort of was first devised in 2017, which is when it first received government funding and ought to, by the end of the year, be able to exist in a form that means, just as with the flu vaccine, which obviously mutates every year, that you don't go, oh God, there's a new variant, what are we going to do? You can basically just go, right, we can tweak this vaccine, redistribute it and vaccinate it in a similar way to the way we do we do flu rather than having a, a return to the nightmare of lockdowns in general, right? If it turns out you can't do it because of the Heathrow issue, the Schiphol issue and other hub airport air, airport issues, well, at least you've tried, right? It's a bit like... It's a bit like when a bunch of other countries went, no, you can't fly from the UK. And it turned out actually the UK variant was already too widespread at that point. But it was the right decision on the part of various international countries to go, well, you know, you might as well try. The caveat to that is that so the 10 day quarantine is a compromise measure already. Right. Like when it was devised at first, it was because broadly and I think this was a bad decision on the part of, of the airline aviation industry them going, look, if you do 14 days, we'll all be destroyed. And so we've ended up with 10. Now, I think it's unlikely that the 10-day quarantine is is something that businesses and, and aviation can adapt to. But we know 10 days is, is not necessarily long enough to prevent the onward transmission of COVID-19. So, okay, the original sin of, of Western Europe's response was that all of our public health officials basically went, oh, no, lockdowns don't work here, don't try. But kind of the the June-May failures, which I think are more interesting, right? Yeah, the, the period when we just kind of didn't learn from any of the successes of, of either the Antipodean or the Southeast Asian democracies, when, you know, we kept having kind of, you know, lockdown policies devised by the Department of Health, but funded by the priorities of the Treasury. I think in terms of those mistakes, a 10-day quarantine is a classic yeah, I mean, as one civil servant put it to me, and may or may not make it into into my final column when the editor looks at it, they were like, look, the problem we've had throughout is the Department of Health's position is everyone should have to wear a condom, and we should therefore pay for a condom for everyone. The Treasury's position is condoms are expensive. So what we've decided to do is tell people they have to wear it, but they should take it off midway through. <laughs> and I just think the 10-day thing just screams, we're back at the light, take it off halfway through approach to corona policy. <laughs> I really do think you should put that in the column, by the way. Yeah, I have. I was about to say I've slipped it in, which feels like the wrong choice of words. <laughs> yeah, but, but who knows if it will make it make it past the gate. The, the analogy is a really good one, and it can also be applied to the sort of flip side of this hotel quarantine sort of policy, which is one of the reasons why you need to do this for people coming from countries where, where you fear the strain of the coronavirus that's spreading in those countries is that you really have to make sure people actually do just stay inside and don't mix with anyone else. Because, you know, as I said, when I was introducing the subject, the, the rule already is that you have to self-isolate if you're if you're coming from abroad. Clearly, you know, there is a there is a sort of tacit suggestion in all of the hotel quarantining kind of ideas that asking people to self-isolate doesn't work. And I think the main thing, regardless of what extra policies the government decides to implement, and it looks like they are going to go ahead with, with this one, the main thing is that you have to make sure that as many people who are asked to self-isolate, whether they're coming from abroad or whether they have been in contact with someone with the virus or whether they have symptoms themselves, you have to make sure that they they have as many tools at their disposal, which means they are going to make that decision to self-isolate. And at the moment, we know that that's not 
happening because although the compliance with the regulations are really high in this country, the number of people who are asked to self-isolate and who should be requesting a test if they have symptoms isn't high enough. That is what I'd call the real blind spot of this government. You know, that that has been a problem from day one. It was one of the first reports that I wrote speaking to people who just couldn't afford to stay at home. And I just don't think the government has done enough to plug that gap. They introduced sort of £500 payments for people on benefits. But, you know, loads of freedom of information requests have shown how few people requesting those have actually been paid those payments. And statutory sick pay is, is still at the same rate, which is, you know, too low to live on. You know, you are always going to have this problem that people who shouldn't be in the community for 10 days, and yes, that is also a fudge, are going to carry on going to work and are going to carry on having to live their lives because they can't afford not to. And I just... Uh, you know, I know we've spoken about it so many times before, but you can talk about quarantining people from certain countries and you can talk about, you know, introducing even stricter measures and sort of threatening the public with all this extra stuff. But this is such a fundamental basic problem that has been there from the start. And if you look at the sort of compliance and behaviour and sort of psychology data that we have, this is the one patch where the public, you could say that the public aren't cooperating. And the reason for that is because they haven't been given the tools by the government to do so. So that's something that I, I do think that I often read these kind of headlines of new plans that the government has. And I, I just think, well, why don't you fix the things that are already broken? Because that's something that if you did make a change, you would see a change, you know, and it wouldn't take two or three weeks to implement like it would with this hotel policy, for example. So, you know, that is the implicit problem behind the need to quarantine people in hotels is that self-isolation at the moment isn't working. Yeah, I completely agree. And at the risk of sounding more authoritarian than normal, I do also think it's not as important as the point that you just made, Anoush, but also that the enforcement of the self-isolation requirement is really not as it should be, in that that is like a famously lax area of coronavirus policy that people for throughout the pandemic, even when it, it didn't feel as serious over the summer, people have been required to self-isolate. I think it was for 14 days at one point, coming back from for Portugal, for example, over the summer. That requirement was there, but you would just get a text or a phone call maybe once over the 14 day period at best and people like I I personally know quite a few people who joke about how you know they they got a call you know while they were out with their friends and they just said that they were at home and that was it and I really really do think that the bigger problem is the one that you've outlined Anush but I've read a couple of quite bonkers pieces this morning about this talking about the imposition of a hotel quarantine as though people shouldn't already be doing those things in their own homes and you know about how it's you know such a dreadful imposition and you know people's right to I, I can't remember the phrase but I just thought it was quite revealing of this sort of assumption that the requirement to self-isolate in your own home is less stringent and I accept that you know maybe it's more difficult if you aren't with the other members of your household or you don't have all of your possessions with the things that you need but I feel like there was something more going on there that people um on some level assume that if you're self-isolating at home and no one really checks you can still pop out a bit as long as you don't really see people or you know if you just go to the shops the once then that's okay but having to do it strictly in a hotel is a completely new proposition when it really shouldn't be 
Yeah, and I and I wouldn't sort of blame people for thinking that that might be the more sort of optional version because of the way that mm-hmm. the public policy works and because of the communications, you know, that test and trace has has been a disaster. And then you also have the confusing, if you have the app and it tells you to self-isolate, that's not legally enforceable. But if a contact tracer tells you to self-isolate, then it is. How is the regular person who's just trying to go about their life going to know the difference People have either not been called or they've been called and told to self-isolate, you know, 14 days after the contact or, you know, told that they should have come out of self-isolation days before they they were told they should have gone into it. And, you know, all sorts of ridiculous stories that people have reported about the test and trace system just not working. So you can kind of see why, you know, if if the government (laughs) treats something as an afterthought or it rolls something out in a hack-handed way then people are people are going to sort of intuit that it may be an afterthought and it may be something that, that the government hasn't focused on to make sure that it's an efficient and sort of competent system so I don't really blame people for thinking that especially not with this sort of suddenly urgent need for, for to put people in hotels who are coming back from certain places it does suggest rather that self-isolation at home is somehow less stringent right a quick final question that I have you know, this policy of hotel quarantine is really famous because Australia and New Zealand, among other places, have championed it and they are now mostly opened up while having quite tight border controls. And I just wonder how they compare. Is it just like a much less viable option in the UK to require people traveling from wherever to have to quarantine in a hotel compared with an economy or an island nation like New Zealand and Australia. I feel like there's been a little bit of chatter about how they're so obviously different and plainly they are quite different, but I just don't know to what extent that's a meaningful difference that should inform the policy here. So there's a really good Institute for Government paper by Sarah Nixon about some of the, both the challenges of the Australian approach and the differences between the the two states and why it will be more you know more difficult not least right Australia doesn't have a land border with anyone else the United Kingdom does and it is of course an open land border it would just be a much more yeah a much more kind of logistically complex much more financially painful because of our economy type and also of course right because we didn't lock down as early there is a question about its level of of efficacy I guess I do just come to it from a position of, well, you might as well give it a shot. But I do basically think that like there is no point. And actually, like the weird thing is, is in terms of what we've spent on it, test and trace, testing in infrastructure is great. The tracing stuff has improved quite a lot. But a test and trace without the provision to centrally isolate, it's kind of like, why bother? It's increasingly clear when you look around the world that actually if you can't, if you can't isolate, and we've you know, seen this in Germany, which obviously was being held up as as a sort of continent leader you still eventually just get to a point where because you aren't able to isolate fresh cases it doesn't matter all your test and trace system is doing is going yep you've got a problem i think it's a good idea in a vacuum i I think my concern right australia obviously has quite stringent internal borders and you know small quarantines more seriously enforced isolation and i guess this thing it comes down to like are we going to do any of the rest of those things are we going to seriously compensate industries not just directly affected but which are indirectly affected or is this going to be like you know the 15th round of a halfway house 
significant economic damage while, you know, the Chancellor sits there going, well, you just need to adapt. And my fear is that that is is what we will end up with in this situation. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So the question today is, do the Welsh Senate elections matter? Stephen, do you want to go first? Well, I guess the the short answer is, well, yeah, of course, because they determine who runs, you know, health, education, large parts of transport policy, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and a wide number of devolved competences in Wales. Sort of almost regardless of whether or not you think then the Welsh elections have any uh, consequence for anyone outside of, of Wales, right? There's still quite a lot of people who are directly affected. The run-on question is, are the Welsh elections usefully predictive about anything, up to and including how Westminster elections in Wales play out? Now, this is the the third successive Welsh election in which the kind of big question going into it is... The Conservatives have gained seats in Westminster and Wales. Will that happen again in in the Assembly election? Now, of course, the composition of the seats has changed slightly. Yeah, in 2010, one of those seats was Cardiff North. Cardiff North is now a Labour seat in, in both levels. And I think it's unlikely that the Conservatives will, will gain it this time around. And yeah, the seats that we instead think of are seats like, you know, Bridge End, uh, bits of, yeah, the rest of the kind of North Wales corridor where they, they gained seats in 2019. So I think it matters, one, because you know, ultimately, although Labour has won every general election in Wales for, you know, over a century now, how the second place, the second and third place parties do does matter quite a lot in terms of yeah, the ability of the party, parties to govern and to govern uh, with a decent majority. I think it also matters because the thing we still don't know is to what extent what happens in, in, in Welsh elections is primarily about how the Welsh government runs itself, about the Senate, and to what extent it is about reactions to Westminster politics. And to be honest, we've had a pretty good stress test in some ways in that over the last couple of days, the senior leadership of the Welsh Conservative Party have basically all had to resign because they are alleged to have broken lockdown on multiple occasions. And so, I mean, I think we'll be better placed to find out exactly what the knock-on effects are, because I think if if we don't see a distinctive Paul Daviesgate effect in the Welsh elections, then I think we will basically be able to go, okay, this probably says more about the condition of, of the Labour Party nationally, with, of course, the massive caveat that Plaid Cymru do a lot better in Welsh elections than they do in Westminster elections held in Wales, not least because the different electoral system does change how some people vote. 
So, yeah, that's kind of a long-winded way of saying, well, yes, it matters directly from a policy perspective, but also, yes, I think it matters from a what does it tell us about politics. But also it matters because all things being equal, at the moment, the most powerful Labour politician is the First Minister of Wales. And as we saw in 2015, how the Welsh government is seen to be doing, how it performs, all of which is dependent on what happens in the Welsh election, does have implications for political debate and discourse in England and to a much lesser extent Scotland. Yeah, I think what's what's going to be a really interesting test in, in this particular election is that the pandemic year has really highlighted beyond sort of any doubt what the actual devolved powers are. So the health service and education being the most prominent, but also, you know, things like social care, land access, housing, all of these things are devolved responsibilities. And perhaps, you know, for those who either don't vote in the Welsh elections or kind of treat it as as another local election, either by not voting or perhaps, you know, sort of voting on in a different way than you would vote in a Westminster election. It would be interesting to see if that has an impact on how people vote. And I, I wonder if that will be to the benefit of the Welsh Conservatives, just because their voters generally tend not to turn out as much in Welsh elections as they would in Westminster elections. And of course, they won those six seats in the Westminster elections last year. So will that success be more likely to carry over into these elections this year because of the fact that it has highlighted to people this isn't just another local election that you either want to skip or you don't need to think about as deeply or or you don't sort of care about? This has been highlighted to you sort of you know, in painful detail, how much the devolved administration and its powers matter. And I wonder if that will have an impact on turnout and also on on the way that people vote, because the Labour administration in Wales has had a few recent problems. The firebreak lockdown was one of them. There were problems with the non-essential items for sale and also the um, the alcohol ban as well drew lots of criticism so i wonder whether or not people will be more attuned to sort of the problems with the way the pandemic has been managed in wales just because of how much the pandemic has highlighted what the actual powers are that the first minister has so i'd be interested to see what impact impact that has and so you know for me that that makes these elections particularly interesting as well as obviously important as they always are and another thing that I, I would find interesting to see is whether or not Adam Price and Plaid Cymru sort of benefit from from the kind of campaign that they're running. Like I remember you did a really interesting interview with him, Stephen, a couple of years ago now, and you were sort of talking about the way that he was pitching himself and there was kind of a, a sort of Tony Blair-esque tone to the kind of campaign that you thought that he was going to run in the sense of it kind of being a presidential campaign more than anything else. And I wonder whether or not that will have a bearing on the on the outcome of this election as well. He polls well, doesn't he? And Plaid Cymru have been doing well in the polling. So whether or not that will translate into the outcome of these elections is, is another thing to keep an eye on. Yeah, and I think that then there's just the ultimate question about who will actually get to form a government in Wales after this, which I think makes it interesting in that Labour is likely to be the biggest party, but it's actually not guaranteed that it forms the next government depending on the actual vote shares that that we see. So it is, you know, possible that we would be looking at a change of government. And then, as you say, separately, whether it's the Conservatives in second place or Plaid Cymru in second place. So yeah, Welsh politics is, uh, is worth following to the person who wanted to know if they were worth it. 
Also, I mean, I think the other reason why I think actually this election does really matter, even though I think that, and I, I find it weird, I realise that there isn't, uh, yeah, there isn't like a suffix for, for drinks gate. The reason why it matters, I think, is that, yeah, I, people got very excited about the last uh, Welsh Government Centre polls, I think, because it fit with lots of the narratives people wanted to tell, right? And if you want to have this kind of like, oh, people don't like the more draconian aspects of the Welsh uh, lockdown, then you can go, oh, well, that's why it's gone down. Or if you think, they, if you oh, it's because they they bungled this aspect of it or they've done this there were there were lots of things that you could have and if you wanted to go oh this is because of of the uk labor party and that that's why these other parties are doing better then it facilitated that actually none of the changes people got excited about in the last poll they weren't really that different from october's poll it's entirely possible they're just statistical noise from november and actually i think in some ways the most significant stuff about watch politics is what hasn't changed which is about a quarter of people think that the assembly should be sorry, not the assembly, the Senate. It will, it is now a parliament. That change has now happened. Yeah, a sort of diminishing quarter think that it should be abolished. A slightly smaller proportion of people, you know, support Welsh independence with the, the kind of centre ground on devolution being that it should should stay. And crucially, since at no point has it looked like the combined number of Senate members from Welsh Labour or the Welsh Liberal Democrats will be 31. That's the only outcome that would produce a stable and non-acrimonious government would be if that were were to happen. That's obviously not going to happen. So the question then becomes is, do the politics align in a way which allow the, I think, you know, whatever you might think of the merits of any of these political positions, I think the strategic argument about why Plaquemurri is best served by getting Welsh Labour out of office is probably right. But that does sort of rely upon the Welsh Conservatives being, for a variety of reasons, a politically survivable and acceptable governing partner, whether in, in official coalition or, or, or via confidence and supply. And I think the interesting thing about the last month is it just feels to me unlikely, you know, parking for a, for a moment, whether or not you think then that would be a desirable government. It just feels to me unlikely that we won't now have a sort of one Wales two, so Labour Party community government that, that we had um, from, from 2007 onwards. That will, of course, be a much more acrimonious government because the two parties will be of slightly different sizes. The chemistry between the principles will be different. But the reason why all of this stuff matters is that it was being the face of the government that really helped the SNP. And so if that doesn't happen after this election for Black Premier, then it's hard to see how they can achieve the successes of, of the SNP. But of course, if they can achieve that through some kind of, you know, minority government, government with the Conservatives, whatever option it takes, then of course it's significant for everyone because surely it will increase the prominence, political viability of Welsh independence as a cause. And that will, of course, have implications for um, politics in, in England and across the United Kingdom. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at pronounced Alva. And me on Twitter as at Stephen KB. Our producer is Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening and please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.